friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ear. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm Neil, he's David, this is Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And boy, it's been a long time, David. Welcome back to the podcast. It's been a while, Neil. Feels good to be recording again, talking a little history. So if everyone's forgotten in the meantime, let's remind them how this works. I'm Neil, you're my brother David, and I'm going to ask you the question that's in the title, and then you tell us a fun story from history. So David, oh brother, when art thou? Neil, it's December 27, 89 BCE, in the city of Rome. Crowds cheer, watching a traditional Roman triumph, marking a recent victory over rebels at Asculum. As is traditional, the column begins with captives driven forward to demonstrate the power of the Roman army, including one young woman carrying in her arms a one-year-old baby, Publius Ventidius Bassus. It will be 50 years before he once again marches in a Roman triumph. Okay, David, so these triumphs are like a big homecoming rally or something. They've won a war, and now they're all coming back through Rome. Big party, I'm sure, because everyone's happy that they've won. So, David, are we going to jump 50 years forward? Well, probably not 50 years all in one go. Probably best to give us a little bit more context before we jump all the way there. So what year is it now, David? So let's start, say... 31 years after 89 BCE, which would put us at 58 BCE. And as you can already tell, since he was one years old in 89, Publius Ventidius Bassus is now a fine 32-year-old young man working as a mule driver in his home city of Asculum, which is once again firmly a part of the Roman Republic. And as it happens, he's one of the more successful mule drivers in Asculum, successful enough that he runs a large, for the small city, mule rental business, where if you want to rent a mule, he's the guy you go to. And as it happens, a Roman general is going through Asculum this year, a Roman general by the name of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar, I've heard of him, David. There's going to be a lot written about him. What is he doing going through Asculum in 58 BCE? So Asculum is in the north of Italy, the northwest of Italy, roughly towards the the Alps, the Alp mountain range, and therefore also towards the border with what is modern-day France. But at the time, that was known as Gaul, And Julius Caesar was the young Roman general who had gotten the job of conquering Gaul now that Rome has decided to do that. So the reason why Caesar is moving through Asculum is to organize and prepare his army to begin his war with Gaul. And since he is doing that, he's looking for somebody to help him. Not with the military side of things. He may be young, but Julius Caesar is already a competent and confident military commander. But he's looking for somebody to help him with the logistic. An army marches on its stomach, as Napoleon once said. And so Julius Caesar needs somebody to help him move 
the food, the loot, everything of value that he needs from where it is to where his army will be. And since he's going to need to march through a mountain range, he's looking to do that with mules, which are the best animal available to the Romans to do that kind of job. And since he's in Asculum looking to hire a bunch of mules and somebody to look after them, it only makes sense that he meets up with Publius Ventidius and, after they have a few conversations and work out a deal, hires him as his mule guy. David, what a fortuitous match. Julius Caesar needed a mule guy and Asculum had a perfect man for him, Publius Ventidius. David, from there, is it merely a matter of marching to conquer Gaul? Well, not for the Roman army, but if we're talking more about Publius Ventidius himself, more or less, yes. For most of the Gallic War, our details on what Bassus is up to personally are pretty sketchy. He's working logistics for Caesar. Caesar's conquering Gaul in a series of bold, sweeping movements as he seizes city after city and defeats Gallic warband after Gallic warband, but we don't have hard details on what Bassus is doing in all of this, but presumably he's doing his job, making sure that supplies get to the front line, no matter where the front line may be, and always on time. And apparently he does it pretty well, because Caesar promotes him several times, and when Caesar finally finishes his conquest of Gaul and plans to go back to Rome, Bassus is going with him as now a relatively high-ranking and popular subordinate of Caesar, this increasingly popular Roman general. So David, Bassus has hitched his wagon, so to speak, to the right mule. He is now closer than ever to Julius Caesar, an important part of this army that's conquering Gaul. Is that all there is to it, David? Put your feet up and relax at this point? Well, the thing is, they're going home to Rome. But unlike you might expect in a more conventional time for an army going home to be finished with its work and dispersing as Roman armies were required to do, Julius Caesar knows that he has political enemies. And indeed, it's been... 30 years at this point since the Social War, the last really major civil war in Rome. But those 30 years have not been peaceful. They've been uneasy at best, as the factions that once existed and fought in the war where Publius Ventidius, as a child, was taken captive, still exist and hate each other in Roman politics. So it's a tense political sphere that they're going back to. And Julius Caesar knows that that makes him a young, ambitious general who's highly politically connected. That puts him in a lot of danger. And so the army doesn't disperse as Roman armies are supposed to do. Instead, they stay together as Julius Caesar goes to Rome to meet with the Senate. But that doesn't go so well. And so Julius decides to cross the great line that no Roman army is ever to cross in peacetime. He takes his army across the Rubicon River to advance close to Rome and force the Senate to agree to his demands. 
And Ventidius, like the rest of his army, is there crossing the Rubicon. So, David, it is unprecedented in Roman history, Julius Caesar bringing his army threateningly across the Rubicon River, right up to the seat of power in Rome. What would times have been like? What would the atmosphere have been like as they do this? Well, at this point, Rome knows that they're on the verge of civil war. Caesar is not the only popular general running around. Gnaeus Pompey, the son, actually, of the general who conquered Asculum 30 years ago, is himself a major political player, but also a general. And there are hints and threats that a real full-scale civil war is about to break out any day. And so the city is tense. But at the same time, even after the Rubicon has been crossed, it's not clear that it's going to come to a battle until it does. And then, of course, the first battle is so quick and Julius Caesar wins so convincingly and announces that he means no threat to the Republic itself and enters the city of Rome peaceably. And people think maybe this is going to go okay. Maybe this isn't going to break out into violence. But unfortunately, they're tragically wrong. So it's a quick first victory for Julius Caesar and his forces, which include Bassus. But now civil war is here. It has arrived in Rome, David. Tell us about the forces that are building and entering this war. So the issue is less one of military force. You've got Caesar's legions and Pompey's legions, and all of these are very conventional Roman legions, heavy infantry, short swords. You can picture them in your your mind. There's a billion Hollywood movies about Roman armies. But the issue at this point, this early stage, is very political. Caesar is making deals with Pompey, but that is moving him away from Brutus, his former friend, and the Senate is desperately looking to restore democratic control over the military, which obviously none of these armies are still under democratic control. The Senate sends orders to the generals, and the generals, if they don't like those orders, just ignore them. So the Senate is desperately trying to reapply its power, retake control. And that makes this a very political struggle as the generals attempt to ensure that their troops will continue to get paid and that they will continue to be important, powerful political players. And the Senate attempts to use what the generals want to get them to basically buy back in to the system. And of course, that's why Julius Caesar goes to Rome and announces that he's entering the city peaceably and attempting to work with the Senate rather than against the Senate and not declare himself emperor. And of course, famously, that's how he dies. In the Senate, murdered by senators, who believe that he will inevitably seize more and more power until his claim not to be an emperor simply becomes a mockery. Beware the Ides of March, David. So this 
brings us to the death of Caesar, famously stabbed multiple times, repeatedly on the Senate floor. What does this mean for his army, David, and for Bassus? Well, for Bassus personally, it's an odd little event because Caesar is murdered, but Mark Antony, one of Caesar's officers, marches into the city and quickly ends up being both more in control and more popular than the senators who killed Caesar. And a political truce is temporarily worked out. There's an announcement that the senators will follow Caesar's appointments, allow the political appointments that Caesar was organizing for his officers to go forward. And in return, the army won't prosecute any of the senators for murder. And Bassus happens to be one of the officers who Caesar was intending to appoint to a political position in Rome. So as part of this truce, he's made praetor in the city of Rome. And so now he's got a senior political role. But at the same time, Caesar is dead, tensions are high, and Bassus, like most of the army, is calling for Mark Antony to break the truce and force out Brutus and the other senators who they view as the enemy. David, I can imagine why Bassus and the other officers see the senators who stabbed their boss, their leader, Julius Caesar, to death as the enemy. I can see that. But maybe what is a praetor in the city of Rome, David? This new position that Bassus has been appointed to through the work of Mark Antony. So a praetor is almost like a judge in modern terms, but also has some executive functions as well, also orders some things around. It's one of the highest political offices in Rome, only two levels below the consul. The pair of consuls are the two highest elected positions in the Roman Republic. And the praetors are below the consuls and the tribunes, and they mostly take judicial kind of function. So this is a high position for Bassus, David, but also a highly unstable time period, at least politically. Can he make himself more powerful? Can he negotiate all of the politics that's roiling through Rome? So this is the time period where it really does break out into open civil war again. We've already mentioned that there were earlier battles, but while Julius Caesar was still alive, but now it breaks out into open civil war once again, and Bassus is out in the field fighting with Mark Antony's faction. They defeat Pompey, then Octavian, Julius Caesar's nephew, gathers his own powerful faction, and Antony doesn't initially fight him, so there's some negotiation going on between the two of them. Brutus tries to raise an army. Bassus is directly involved in rescuing Antony after Brutus's new army surprises him at the first battle. And then together, Antony and Bassus defeat Brutus. And at this point, Octavian has most of the senior leadership, theoretically the senior elected leadership in Rome, who are theoretically in charge, but at this point lack practical power because they don't have the military forces of the generals who are actually contesting for power. Octavian starts 
assassinating people left and right in order to put his own supporters into those positions. And one of the interesting effects that this has is our boy Bassus keeps on getting promoted because the way the Roman system works is if a tribune dies, a praetor steps up to be the tribune so that there's no gap, no period where you don't have someone in the more senior position. So with all of these guys in Rome who don't have armies getting assassinated, but Bassus being relatively safe because he's with his army fighting with Antony, he actually starts rising even higher in the rank and dramatically and for one year becomes a consul of Rome after Octavian has briefly seized the position but then given it up as part of a deal with Antony to share power. And this is one of the more interesting elements here because Octavian actually agrees that Bassus, who's traditionally viewed up till this point as just being working for Antony, can take Octavian's place, which shows that Octavian views him as not just Antony's subordinate, but as somebody who they can both work with, somebody who Octavian can work with as well. So he's rising both politically, but also in terms of his connections with the new power structure here in Rome. Wow, David, it certainly is a turbulent time in Rome. We have out-and-out military fighting, plus all these political machinations behind the scenes. But the end result is that Bassus, who started all the way back as a mule driver, has worked his way up through the army of Julius Caesar, past Caesar's death, and then into the army of Mark Antony, and now he is all the way up to consul of Rome, the highest position of power in the city. What is his year in power as a consul like? Well, Bassus doesn't do very much as a consul. And from the records we have available, it's not entirely clear why, but the sort of most common historical theory is basically that he doesn't want to get assassinated. Smart move, David. Smart move. If you look at it, he was one of Antony's most trusted subordinates, but now that he's accepted this position that Octavian had to agree to quit in order to give him, that sort of makes him suspect to Antony, but he doesn't have super great relations with Octavian because clearly he's still more closely linked with Antony than with Octavian, so he's in sort of a delicate position. So he's consul for a year, he could stand for re-election, He definitely does not. He doesn't want to be a consul again. And he takes on a very different job. Instead of standing for re-election as a consul, he uses his position while he's still a consul to give himself an appointment for next year after he will not be consul any longer. And he decides to send himself out east onto the border with the Parthian Empire to serve as the Roman general there, which is a crucial position right now, because the civil war in Rome looks like weakness to the Parthians, who have started pressing on the Roman border and are looking to expand. Wow, David, what a move. He uses his power to give himself a position for when he'll no longer have that power I don't think that would be legal anymore, but uh, good on him for getting away with it back in Rome. 
So now he's going to be a general, David, and it sounds like not such an easy job because the Parthians are viewing this as a weakness. And isn't it really a weakness for Rome? How is he going to defend this eastern border while there is a civil war ongoing? It's even worse than that, Neil. Not only do the Parthians view Rome as being weakened and are preparing to attack, before the civil war began, when Julius Caesar was conquering Gaul, it made Marcus Crassus, one of his political rivals, jealous of his military success. And Crassus attempted to invade Parthia to achieve military success of his own. With the Roman army at its height before the civil war had broken out, but Crassus failed disastrously and lost his entire army and died himself. So even without being weakened, it looked like Rome wasn't strong enough to hold the border against Parthia. But now they are weakened, and the man who is going to stand between Rome and Parthia is Publius Ventidius Bassus. And he's going to do a fantastic job. So the man who started as a mule driver worked his way up to the highest political position in Rome and has now made himself a general in a seemingly hopeless job, takes over and not just holds on, but does a fantastic job, David. Why is that? Is there transferable skills between mule driver and general against Parthia? Well, you have to remember, he's spent a long time being Julius Caesar's logistics guy. So he has a set of skills that are not to be sneered at in terms of providing logistics to an army. One of Parthia's great strengths is that they're in the Middle East, which is mainly desert kind of terrain, and they have a very strong cavalry arm. And on the relatively flat terrain that is harsh, that requires you to have enough water and enough food that you can't just scavenge off the land, you have to bring it with you. That's been a traditional problem for Roman generals uh, when fighting against Parthians who are much more used to living, moving, and fighting in that kind of terrain. But Bassus, when he arrives, does a very good job of making sure that his troops are supplied. He understands overland supply using mules, using horses, using, using wagons. He also understands overwater supply. He's learned these skills in Gaul. And by combining those skills, he's able to move faster than the Parthians expect, arrive where they don't expect him to be. And in his first battle against the Parthians, he moves faster than they expect, gets into their rear area, has his troops well supplied from logistics without requiring them to go and raid the surrounding area for food, and digs them in into a fortified encampment on a hill, and when the Parthians arrive chasing him, they attack, and it's a disaster for the Parthians because all of their advantages in terms of speed and maneuverability do them no good trying to attack uphill a Roman fortified camp. So in his first battle, it's a tremendous success. The Parthians are forced to withdraw back to the borders of Parthia, and Bassus is pleased to write back to Rome about his successes and is digging in, 
hoping that this one success will be enough and the Parthians will withdraw. But unfortunately for him, as a result of the ongoing civil war in Rome, a group of Roman soldiers have fled to Parthia to avoid getting killed in Rome after losing in the civil war. And the Parthians feel that this is a useful group, and they announce that they view one of them as the rightful emperor of Rome, which is a super dubious proposition, but that's not what's important. And so it's clear that there's about to be a second invasion the next year. So the Parthians, David, now have some inside help. They've got a bunch of Romans with them. They're calling one of them the rightful emperor of Rome, and now they are hell-bent on invading Rome right through Bassus and his army. Can he pull it off twice, David? I mean, it's one thing to beat the Parthians once with the element of surprise and them not expecting a general who's so good at logistics, but can he pull off the same trick twice? Yes. Yes, he can. Almost literally the same trick. Actually, it's a slightly different trick. This time, he's been on the borderland enough to start to get to know the political players, the local kingdoms in between Rome and Parthia, which are themselves ever quick to switch sides and sell information. And so he plays dumb. He goes to a bunch of the local kings who he knows are secretly selling information to Parthia, and he tells them all that he's super afraid that the Parthians are going to slip past him and attack not over the open plain where they'll have all their advantages, but which is the expected route, but instead through a dense hilly area where he won't be able to stop them because he can't stop attacks in two places. And of course, he needs to defend the plains first. And he pretends like he's sending all these messages to try and recruit an army of locals to defend the hilly area, which leads the Parthians to believe that he doesn't have anybody protecting it, and they attempt to rush their army through the hills before he's prepared. But actually, he knew they would think that, and his army is already encamped on top of a hill, just like last time. He knows this works for him. He knows that the Parthians can't seize a Roman camp on the top of a hill. And when the Parthians arrive, the Roman army is there unexpectedly, and exactly the same thing has happened last year happens again. They try and charge up the hill, and it's a disaster. And then the Romans counterattack and throw them back. Once again, Parthian army destroyed, Roman army basically intact, massive success. David, I love this little bit of disinformation, letting the Parthians think that they know a secret, that they know that they can get through the hilly area when, in reality, that's what he wanted all along. It's a brilliant piece of strategy, David. Is that it for the Parthians attacking Rome? Are they done? Are they bested by Bassus? So that's it for the Parthians attacking Rome. It's not technically quite it for Rome attacking the Parthians, because Mark Antony is actually about to show up. Most of Bassus's subordinates wanted him to attack into Parthia after two victories. They're feeling, you know, it's a good time. Seize some Parthian land, even though our civil war isn't really done. But hey, feels like we can win. 
And Bassus refuses to move. It's unclear why. But Mark Antony arrives, and he decides that the subordinates were right, and they should attack into Parthia. And that's not really, I mean, you can't say a disaster. There's no major defeats. But the Roman army is harassed by horse archers as they try and cross the desert. And so the attacks all fail, and Antony is forced to retreat with no real success, but the Parthians aren't really feeling a round two either. So it all sorts of fizzles out, this war sort of ends. But meanwhile, when Antony arrived, one of the things he wanted to do was get Bassus out of the way, because the entire reason he wants to invade into Parthia is to make Mark Antony more famous and popular in Rome, and having Bassus around doing the fighting, wouldn't help that. So he needed a way to convince Bassus to leave, and he had a clever one, or maybe Bassus sort of suggested the idea, but either way, Mark Antony decides the best way to move Bassus out of command is to send him back to Rome to celebrate a traditional Roman triumph, since he's won twice against the Parthians, these terrible enemies. Which leads us back to where I opened this podcast, Publius Ventidius Bassus, 50 years apart, marching in two Roman triumphs, first as an infant captive of the Roman army, and second as the triumphant general who led the Roman army to victory. David, it's an incredible story, an incredible rise, and just an incredible amount of hard work and perseverance by Bassus to rise from a slave in a defeated army all the way to the very top of a victorious army. What a great story. Thanks for telling us, David. I always enjoy it, Neil. And if you enjoyed this story, be sure to go check out our back catalogs. We got a few other stories from ancient Rome, which follow a similar line as this one. And of course, lots of other stories from history. And follow us on social media at When Art Thou, wherever you get your social media. We'll keep you up to date on all our new episodes as they come out. David, we always like to end with a quiz. Are you ready for a quiz? I could do a quiz, Neil. All right. Today, we're going to play a little over under, David. Half a year is about 182 days. So we're going to play over under 182 days. Simple enough? Makes sense. All right, so here's our first historical event, David. We'll start with an easy one. The Spanish-American War, over or under 182 days. Huh. I know you said that's an easy one, but I could actually see it going either way. I don't believe it was a very long war, but I could see it being more than six months. It took a while for the Americans to even reach Cuba, given all the organizing and army needs. I'm going to guess over. You're wrong on this one, David. It was about 77 days, all told, the Spanish-American War, depending exactly where you start and stop counting, as you mentioned, but about 77 days. So we'll take the under on that one. How about this, David? The filming of Apocalypse Now, Francis Ford Coppola's famous Vietnam War movie, over under 182 days to film that. Oh, man. On the one hand, I would usually guess that a Hollywood movie would take less than six months to film, but Apocalypse Now, of course, was famously a labor of love on Coppola's part with a long and troubled production, so I'm actually going to take the over on this one, I think. 
You're smart, David. It was way longer than that. 238 days to get Apocalypse Now fully filmed. How about James Garfield's presidency, David? James Garfield assassinated in office. Was it before or after 182 days that he passed away? Huh. You know, I really don't know much about James Garfield's presidency, so I honestly don't know the answer. I'm going to guess under just because I haven't guessed under yet. That's as good a reason as any, David, but it was actually longer, 199 days for the presidency of James Garfield. The 1971-72 LA Lakers, David, went on the NBA's longest win streak. Were they undefeated on that win streak for over or under 182 days? The NBA's longest win streak, was it longer than six months? I'm willing to guess that it was. I'm willing to take the over on this one. I got you here, David. This one was actually pretty short, just 66 days. They won 33 games, the LA Lakers. Last question for you, David. Blackbeard's reign of terror, over or under 182 days? Huh. I don't know a lot of the specifics of Blackbeard, but a lot of the famous pirates of the Age of Sail had relatively short careers when you think about it in modern terms. It was a sort of high impact kind of a thing. It seized a couple of wealthy ships and you either retired or else you got unlucky and died, but not a lot of people wanted to be a pirate for their entire life. So I'm going to guess under. Your reasoning is right on, David. It was a sort of short-lived job usually. It was over, though. He did manage to last 456 days, Blackbeard the Pirate. Thanks for playing along, David. I always enjoy it, Neil. And thanks for listening. 